I'm your host, Demetria Wack. And I'm your host, Michael Wiafe. Today on PolicyWise. The California State University Public University System consists of 23 campuses enrolling about a half a million students, the largest four-year public university system in the entire United States. Altogether, about half of the bachelor's degrees, a third of the master's degrees, and almost 2% of the doctoral degrees awarded each year in California are from the CSU. Plus, as Michael and I can both demonstrate, clearly the most promising and humble graduates in the world. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to one of my greatest role models and friends, who we've mentioned at least a few times on the podcast, recognizing him for his amazing leadership skills. Dr. Joseph I. Castro serves as the eighth chancellor to lead the California State University. He's the first Californian and first person of color to serve in this role. The grandson of immigrants from Mexico and the son of a single mother, Dr. Castro is the first in his family to graduate from a university. He earned a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's in public policy from UC Berkeley, uh, go, uh, go Bears, and a PhD in higher education policy and leadership from Stanford University. He's a renowned and gifted scholar in the fields of leadership and public policy and has mentored hundreds of other scholars and practitioners, including many university presidents and senior officers. Prior to his appointment as CSU Chancellor in September 2020, Dr. Castro served as president of California State University Fresno beginning in 2015. (laughs) He also worked in the University of California system for 23 years. I must say that in my years of student government and having worked with so many administrators that Dr. Castro is one of a kind and is at the very top of my list to people to work with uh, in higher education. And as we know, there's a lot more to your story and how you got to the current role as chancellor of the CSU. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to add that you feel is important? Um, Perhaps how you got into administration in the first place uh, or why Fresno State is the best CSU? <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me to, to join you. I've been excited about doing so. I, I think so highly of both of you. And I love that you've come together around this powerful program. I just feel deeply honored to be able to serve during such a consequential time. And you two are incredible examples of what the CSU uh, is doing and can continue to do. We prepare bold leaders like the two of you and so many others. We're about ready to have our four millionth alum this this spring, four million. And uh, yeah, I couldn't be be prouder to serve right now. So I'm excited about it and looking forward to our conversation today. I actually just had the the privilege of getting off of a, another call just pretty recently um, with some folks, uh, student leaders from across the state, um, including Zara, the the, the current CSSA wow. president. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. But we were talking about the Recovery with Equity Task Force, uh, which I had the pleasure of being on and and kind of gathering around students to discuss that and what needs to happen. Uh, But in that same spirit of kind of policy innovation and what needs to happen and what's going to come in the next few years, what are some major initiatives that you're focusing on, uh, maybe in your in your first years or that you have focused on? And then over the next few years, what are your priorities? Well, I'd say number one in terms of priority is to uh, continue our strong focus on graduation initiative 2025 um, and to achieve those um, ambitious graduation rate goals and then to eliminate the equity gaps. I, you know, we've been on schedule to get to achieve those graduation rate goals, but we're not quite on schedule with the equity gaps. So 
that's uh, what we're doing right now is redoubling our focus on the equity gaps between underrepresented students and other students and Pell Grant students and other students. Mm-hmm. Some campuses have a very you know, modest gap around underrepresented students like at Fresno State. Um, however, we had a pretty high Pell gap that was so stubborn, it was still like 7%. So um, each campus has a slightly different story. There are some that have small gaps and some that have larger gaps, and we're going to eliminate all of them. I've, I've committed to that with the presidents. We're going to do that. And the other thing that we're doing, and we just agreed to this at our last meeting, is we're going to use an equity lens with respect to the allocation of all funding going forward. So the campuses that serve more students from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, and we'll use Pell as kind of our our sharpest uh, tool, so to speak, um, they'll get more funding than campuses that have fewer Pell students. And the, the presidents all have bought into that. So I, I think that that's going to make a huge difference. And then uh, want to accelerate the diversity of our faculty. I think that we have a lot of opportunity there. Uh, women and people of color in the sciences and the STEM fields and uh, to make sure that our students, you know, are able to work with faculty from backgrounds that are similar to theirs and um, reflect the diversity of a student body. And then I want to accelerate the use of technology to enhance teaching and learning. And I've been able to do that at different points throughout my career. And I'm looking at with the president's a system initiative how do we leverage the nation's largest public university in a way where we can really get you as students, uh, well, you both are alumni, but get the 500,000 <laughs> students access to state-of-the-art technology. So those are some of my priorities, and um, I'm, 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 in, I'm encouraged. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the work. We've made some dramatic progress and you know, restoring our budget cut so early in my chancellorship has been a huge thing. We're expecting that. We're expecting uh, larger investments. And last fall when I was appointed, I was told we'd have the you know worst budget year in history, but it looks like we might have one of our best. So knock on wood, that's good news. Absolutely. So glad that things turned out, at least, at least in that sector, <laughs> things turned out in, in yeah. a better way. Uh, yeah. I, I did want to follow up a little bit. I do know that the that there have been some articles and, and some talk about the UC and their funding model towards campuses as a system. Uh, yeah. I I recall one of the challenges that that we faced. Kind of bringing in my San Diego State perspective, but also you know from a system wide perspective, was satellite campuses and how do you you know how do you factor that into the campus funding model? Was yeah. that part of the discussion? And did you all reach a conclusion on on or I guess how how does that happen? Well, um, one of the things that we also decided, in addition to um, you know using Pell Grant students as one of the criteria, leading criteria, is we also looked at campuses that have been historically under-resourced for whatever reason. And there are some campuses that um, are operating with fewer dollars per student than, than others. So we're going to, we've committed to adjusting that over time and that will help to make sure that every student has the, you know, support to be successful. That's really the idea. 
So we will be making adjustments that way as well. There are three or four campuses that were in that position. So they'll get um, more funding than some of the other campuses. Uh, and that will help with those as well that have the off-campus centers. The idea that you're working with 23 presidents, um, a role that you're very familiar with from Fresno <laughs> State. And as chancellor, how do you exactly conceptualize that role? Is it working with those presidents? Is it working with presidents and students and faculty? Um, are you, you know, driving the ship, guiding the ship? How do you, how do you see yourself in this role? I, I'm still reflecting on the difference. It's a pretty remarkable difference in job. And um, so most of my time now as chancellor is um, working with presidents. So I talk with several of them each day. Sometimes it's because they have a challenge and they need a sounding board. Uh, or they need my assistance. I try to make sure whether it's morning, you know, day or night that I'm there for them. So that's an important part of the job and that helps me to stay connected to the campuses. You know, on any given day, I'm in several meetings with legislators. So now I've met and worked with probably almost all the 120 elected officials in Sacramento and wow. the governor, stay in frequent touch with him and his staff. Washington, D.C. with, uh, you know, congressional members there and the speaker and our senators and our House members and then the trustees, um, because I, you know, ultimately I'm accountable to them and the trustees are just wonderful. I'm so lucky um, they understand what their role is. And so when they call me, it's usually, can you give me some information about this issue or that issue or I'd want to give you some advice about an issue. So those are kind of the, the main groups that I connect with on a regular basis. And what that requires me to do is to reach out to Zara and the CSSA. I love to do that. And I'm meeting with her regularly and meeting with the you know, plenary session regularly. The same with the Academic Senate. Since I don't have faculty here, I look to Professor Collins and to the Senate as a whole to stay connected to the faculty. And then with the staff uh, through the union leaders, by and large, meeting with them on a regular basis. So that that's really important for me because it would be, if, if I don't make those active efforts, it would be easy to not get enough time with the students and faculty and staff. And that was the part of being president that I love the most, especially the students. So. It's been a very different job and I'm getting used to it and, and I like it. It has the ability, you use the word, of, you know, do you guide or drive? It depends on the issue. And um, because I, you know, worked with the other presidents uh, as a peer, it, it does make it easier in some respects because they know me and um, I know them, uh, but we're in a different role now. So that takes a little bit of an adjustment. And I think that's going pretty well. I, in fact, I'm the first um, chancellor to ever come from the presidency within the CSU. So it's a very unique situation uh, that's not ever happened. And uh, and I think that's helping right now during this you know very difficult time for everybody during the pandemic. Oh, wow. That is so ah, that's so interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, really Never exciting. Happened. Yeah. yeah. There was one president who became provost. Um, and then he was an interim chancellor, but they they never all the other chancellors were selected from outside. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations. Yeah. 
Um, Thanks. It's so exciting. And it's, it's great to hear that it's, it's going well too. It's like, it's almost yeah. like when you're in elementary school, not the same, but, and, and like you become the hall monitor and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, wait, <laughs> we got to keep everyone in order now. <laughs> different roles. Um, that's it's really true. exciting. It's, it's a different relationship. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, they're all very, they're all great colleagues. And, uh, but it would be hard for them to say, well, you don't really understand what I'm going through because it's like, yeah, actually, I do. I've been through that. <laughs> so it helps in that way too. Definitely, definitely. And something else you mentioned was, um, you know, working with trustees and legislators. And I think it's yeah. part of the CSU system that as a student, you don't necessarily have full awareness of. Um, yes. And, you know, we had a chance to talk to actually Trustee Fong yesterday on the um. podcast. Um, and so, yeah, so everyone will have to tune into that episode too, to hear kind of a whole different perspective. Um, yes. but what I, what I think is really critical for your role is, um, the idea that when you're talking to legislators, you're kind of making a case for the CSU as opposed to a lot of greater, wider issues and why resources should be distributed to, you know, to the California state university system. Um, and so when you're kind of, you know, making that, that argument, that claim, um, and also maybe how you internalize your view of the CSU itself, how do you see the CSU playing a, you know, a role in the, like wider society? Um, what kind of role do you think the CSU has in compared to other university systems, but also maybe university systems more generally as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, well, I think as the the nation's largest public university, we have the ability to, you know, um, lead the way uh, all across the country. I, I was on a call yesterday with uh, one of the leaders in Oregon, and we were talking about equity gaps and exchanging information. And he was really honest with me. He goes, look, whatever you guys say you're doing, we're all looking to that and, and we're going to follow your lead, whether it's this new vaccine requirement or our focus on graduating more students from all backgrounds in a timely way. Mm. Um, I, I think we have such a powerful story to tell, and I try to do that in collaboration with our students. So Zara joins me often for these conversations, other mm. student leaders, uh, faculty leaders, staff leaders. And what I've tried to do as chancellor is have us speak to the legislature with one voice and in that way, they understand we're all together and we had our priorities uh, for them and making the case for greater investment. And thankfully, it's it's been paying off and we think we're going to get even more money in the May revise. Um, I I have not seen the details, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic and that's going to help us. As you both know, we have so many needs uh, to refurbish classrooms and laboratories and Mm -hmm. to make our campuses, um, you know, as as modern as possible to serve all of our students. So I have found that that's a really powerful way of connecting with them. So they meet not just me, but but presidents, uh, professors, student leaders, staff leaders, hearing, you know, pretty much the same message that the investment will pay off for California we just had our economic impact report. I don't know if you saw that, but um, it is really incredible. I mean, if you include the alumni uh, sort of kind of leadership contributions economically, mm -hmm. it becomes um, 
for every $1, the CSU produces almost $40 for California. Man, what a great investment economically. And then if you think about it from a, you know, social perspective as well, the social mobility part of what we do, so powerful. Um, And I find the equity conversations are on the minds of all the legislators. So they really appreciate their leadership. I was on with one of the caucuses last night, and that was something that was really important for them. So um, those are some of the ways in which we try to tell the story and and explain what some of our challenges are and how they, in partnership with us, can be supportive. And sometimes they have ideas that are not completely aligned with ours, but then we try to figure out, well, how, how can we get the win for you politically and, and for the CSU and for California. So it's trying to find those, uh, you know, areas of common ground as well. Well, if there's somebody who's going to be able to do it, it, we're talking to them right now. Um, (laughs) I also wanted to just kind of bring in and, and highlight some of what we mentioned in the introduction that you're, you're breaking barriers and you're serving as a role model for so many students, of course, Demi and I, but so many others that you likely haven't even had the chance to meet yet. So I'm very curious, at least this far, how do you feel like your identity and your background? I mean, you're, we're, we're talking about economic impact of the CSU and socioeconomic advancement for families. You felt that directly. Uh, so how, how do you feel like your experience and your perspective has maybe shaped things differently um, so far? Well, I'd like to think that it matters. Uh, it seems to matter. I hear from the students that it matters, uh, that, that I share a lot of the experiences that they have. I understand on a personal level, you know, what it means to, to get financial aid and to get mentoring and support. Uh, so all those things when we talk about, you know, graduation initiative 2025 and the need to make sure that students get that support, uh, financial aid modernization. I, you know, I was a Cal Grant B student, so I understand what that what that is. I was a Pell Grant student. Um, I used to get you know, I've told students this story a couple times that I used to get an emergency loan every semester because that was the way that I bridged the gap from one semester to another. So then I'd get my financial aid the next semester and I'd use that to pay off the emergency grant because I knew I was going to need to do that again at the end of the at the end of the term. And that was just, you know, I, I tried to use those different strategies. So in terms of basic needs, uh, as Debbie knows, I really leaned into those issues in Fresno and have supported that um, all across the system now. And then I find with the trustees that they appreciate that I understand that. Uh, Many of them come from those backgrounds. You know, Trustee Fong and I, we both have the same roots. You know, our grandparents came to build the railroad and, you know, it's possible that our relatives were doing that together. I mean, now we get to work together on the CSU, which is awesome. And and I find with the legislators, too, that they appreciate that I have that perspective. And uh, one last night was saying, you know, it doesn't sound like this is just words for you. This You really mean it. And I said, yeah, I really do mean it. So I'd like to think that that matters. And I'm just going to continue to to use that to guide, you know, new policies and perspectives. I want to remove barriers. So whenever I find barriers for success. I'm going to try to remove those and 
and that hopefully will make a positive difference over time. You know, uh, the basic needs initiative, when you're talking about, you know, setting a model for different universities in different areas. And um, I think that's one of like the, probably one of the most prominent examples I could think of during, you know, my time mm-hmm. um, at Fresno State and in, in student leadership. And um, yeah, I, it's honestly, a, I think it's a model for like on, on an international level now, more and more students, schools are becoming like this hub uh, for basic needs is like this really fantastic way um, to reach to reach people and to provide like really necessary welfare. And uh, it's great to see the CSU taking that lead. Um, you brought it up, and I guess it's another area that the CSU is taking, you know, kind of an aggressive lead on, which is the vaccine requirements. Uh, I was yes. wondering if you could go into kind of the decision, um, the decision there, maybe the conversation, and how you ultimately um, decided to require vaccines for the CSU. Absolutely. Well, of course, this issue of vaccines has been um, discussed for several months now. And once we knew that they were going to be available beginning, you know, mostly in January, we started talking about, you know, how we were going to approach the fall. And um, it became clear to to me and to the presidents um, that the safest path to a a campus where people could come back and have, you know, some reasonable level of assurance that they, that they were going to stay healthy really required us to think about it in this way that we couldn't just say, well, let's inspire it and hopefully everybody will do it. I mean, that's important, but we thought that was not going to be sufficient. So then I started to talk with president Drake about it at the UC and he had the same kind of, of view, even though we were having separate conversations. And and so then we brought those conversations together and he and I made the decision that we were going to announce this jointly. And we wanted to do that for California. Chancellor Oakley thought about it. And because of the decentralized approach of the community colleges, he wasn't able to join us, but he definitely supported us. And as you might know, since we announced that, um, a lot of other universities have followed suit. And we've we predicated it on the full authorization of at least one vaccine. And now Pfizer has applied, and we hope that that will be approved before the fall. And, and then anybody who has a vaccine that's approved even emergency approval will be able to use that, whether it's here or in another country. If they're from another country and they receive the vaccine there, that will that will fulfill the requirement. And then there'll be an exemption for medical uh, and, and religious reasons, and we'll document those. And then if you're a student that um, doesn't get vaccinated, there will be some virtual courses available. I can't promise that they're going to be all the courses at the exact time, but there will be virtual courses available if they don't get vaccinated. So I, I do think that that's going to really help with our faculty and staff who were mostly vaccinated and concerned about the students being vaccinated. So I think it's going to provide that level of, of security for people that we can do this safely. And I think that it's it's particularly important uh, from my vantage point, 
for the international students. I mean, it, yeah. it's important for us here, the, the domestic students, but yes. a lot of them can't even come unless, you know, th that there's these securities in place. This, this is something that both of you could help with as leaders. I am concerned that there's still some unevenness of, um, of uh, students in your age group who are deciding to get the vaccine. You know, many of them are still kind of waiting and I'm not exactly sure what that's all about. I, I'm trying to lean in and understand, um, but there does seem to still be some hesitancy by some students. And I'm hoping that we're going to, we're working with the governor's office to have a campaign that really tries to get, you know, more students at all colleges and universities in California to get vaccinated. And we're trying to make it easy by having the facilities on campuses, pop-ups and, you know, um, you can go to the CVS right down the street. It's only for for CSU students at this time. We're trying to do lots of these creative things, and you know, having your leadership there would would really be helpful. Yeah, definitely, well, definitely. Um, I, I think, think not we're only, willing to help out in any way. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. I was I was gonna say like I I think um, you know, one thing like right now that we can do with even with this platform is like. If you're listening right now and you yourself are finding, you know, reasons that you don't want to take the vaccine, we as policy wise would love to to hear your reasoning. I think that's some place that we can start. Uh, and then of course, you know, going going from there. Um, That'd but be I, great. Yeah, because I I um I think there's a, a variety of reasons, um, but none of which I could com like completely discern. And and you know, education is such a strong point. So I think the fact that this is um, happening on campuses. And through the chancellor's office support um, is really, really huge because um, I do think that education is just really at the center of it. So thank you for your effort. Yeah, you bet. And I think getting out the facts, I know some some students are concerned about potential side effects. And I, I get that. And um, I think the science is becoming much more clear about that every every single day because we've had a longer track record to evaluate and so I think, you know, making sure everybody understands what the situation is very important. Absolutely. I mean, at first, Demi, thank you for for really making sure that, yes, we need to hear that input and we'll make sure that the right people hear the, the reasoning for not getting a vaccine. I'll share. So I, I am fully vaccinated, but I was just a hair hesitant. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I'm happy to share why. <laughs> Please. I got vaccinated in March, so it's been a few months. Um, the first reason is I am afraid of needles. <laughs> that was the... <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> that was reason number one. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was kind of like, okay, I knew I was going to get it eventually, but something had to push me just a little bit, especially because... I think at this point, so many of us have gotten just so comfortable just not going outside. Like, it's just, uh, and so it's like, why do I need a vaccine if I don't leave my room? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think though, as the as the the world, the state, our universities, our campuses continue to open, that there will become more and more reasons for folks to get vaccines. And so to me, I, I did get my vaccine. I, I mentioned that. My parents were, were part of that, of 
I, I come from a family of healthcare professionals. And so it wasn't really a question of if, <laughs> it, it was when. Uh, <laughs> and so for me, I knew that that was gonna be my push, but for some other folks, it might be a friend, it might be a family member, it might be a mentor, a, a faculty member. I think that there, there just needs to be, for some folks, a little bit of that push. And so I think some sort of public messaging campaign, but also a very concerted effort among folks to genuinely reach out to people, say, hey, did you know that you can get a vaccine today, that you can get it tomorrow? I have friends that won't do it because they're like, oh, I heard, I heard of that. You know, the, the few days after you get the second one, it's real. <laughs> I was definitely sleeping. Um, but, you know, trying to wait for the perfect time to get it done. And I think I just came to the conclusion that there, that there was not going to be a perfect time, that, that you maybe have to, to bite the bullet and make sure that you are not only protecting yourself, but protecting the people around you. And I think that that's what it ultimately came down to. I had kind of like the opposite experience where um, I, so I'm, I was vaccinated in the UK and so they have like a totally different shot and it's like, it's AstraZeneca. Um, it's like probably more commonly known as like the Oxford vaccine. Um, and like two days after I'd gotten mine, they had come out with like, you know, some of the blood clot speculation for like, um, like women of like my age category. And I, I don't know, I was just like, okay, well. It is what it is now. Luckily, everything was okay, but I had the very opposite approach. Where I was like, I need this now. I need to see people. I need to get out. Um, but I do think, Michael, you bring up a really good point, and I feel like the convenience factor is just like a huge part. And I know, like for certain work and certain schedules, they are allowing, you know, people. Um, I think it's a government assistance wise to you know take some days out when you're getting your vaccine. And um, yeah. I was wondering if the CSU is looking into any of that, like, you know, making, you know, convenience on the side of like, okay, you can have like, you know, some rest period after, after getting the shot. Um, I know it obviously is all complicated and different um, just in the way that the rollout's been going. Uh, but has there been any thoughts on, on stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. For our staff and faculty, they have that, they have that uh, opportunity to take time off to get vaccinated and, as you both said, you know, it's hard to know what will happen after I, I was, I was fine. My wife, uh, needed, you know, to sleep for a while. So we all react to it differently. And, and so, yeah, we definitely offer that opportunity. And, um, so I, yeah, I think that together we can try to inspire more to try it, you know, just to, I get it. Cause I, I don't like needles either. So I look over <laughs> I don't want to see them putting that needle in my arm. Oh, <laughs> but tough. it goes fast, right? It goes pretty fast. It did, it did go by fast. And I will admit that that was probably at least the first, the first dose for me was the most painless needle I've ever received in my life. Yeah. Of all the needles I've gotten, that one I was like, and he was like, oh, you're done. And I looked over and said, oh, what? Yeah, mine was the same. I was like, okay, uh, all right. I was like, I'm pretty sure they just put a Band-Aid on me. I don't even think I got it. <laughs> yeah. Did, was AstraZeneca just the one shot? Uh, uh, it's two. It's two. Oh, it's um, two. Yeah, okay. two, two shots. Um, and yeah, it's not currently in the U.S., but it's still still getting pushed out there. And I think the EU has re has begun to like re-administer it again. Um, but it went under same, like the same kind of criticism as like uh, Johnson and Johnson or the other ones here. Uh, Chancellor Castro, you mentioned a little bit earlier or, or kind of alluded to really the national context of higher education. Um, 
the CSU is the largest four-year uh, degree granting institution in the country. And I'm sure that that has a lot of implications for, you know, the way that people, the way that the, the leadership is held by the institution, as you, as you mentioned. I'll say that in my time in student leadership, in Demi, I don't know if you had a similar experience uh, going to college during the time that we did um, from 2016 to 2020. You know, I would say that federal policy wasn't something we engaged in much. It, mm. it wasn't really what we spent a lot of time on. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, we go to the state for everything. And if we have to go to D.C., I guess we'll make a call. <laughs> um, mm. But I'm really wondering, it, without, you know, without uh, alluding to any deeper political uh, factors, but how maybe has that changed? Or maybe what are some of your priorities federally? And what changes are you pushing for? And what do you think might be able to be accomplished? Yeah, one of the exciting things for me is to have the federal government leadership aligned so much with our state government leadership around higher education. Mm -hmm. So again, without getting into the larger political issues, uh, President Biden and Governor Newsom are together on K-12 and higher education, which is just wonderful for, for us, for the CSU. So our top priority is to uh, double the maximum Pell Grant. And, double the Pell. and if we're able to double Pell, uh, we will be able to accelerate our success, our access and success is going to make it much uh, more viable for students. It will address some of the basic needs issues that they're facing. Um, it will, uh, I think, accelerate their time to degree. It'll just make it a lot more accessible for students from all backgrounds. And then our other priority was to get uh, DACA students Pell Grants and to find a path to citizenship. And President Biden has already announced that they're going to increase the Pell Grant and they're going to allow uh, DREAMers to receive Pell Grants. So, We've basically achieved those uh, part part of those goals already, um, but I'm hopeful that in the coming you know months and years the Congress will actually be bolder in terms of Pell because um, you know they've taken a step forward, but I think there's a lot more that can be done there. So those are our top priorities, and then we want to try to get more investment in research in the CSU for agriculture mm. or health, uh, engineering, a whole wide range of areas where our kind of research, where we mentor a new generation of leaders in this area is really you know, attractive to the federal government. And so I think that we'll have the opportunity to see greater investment there from, from the federal government where, as you probably know, um, 21 of our 23 campuses are Hispanic serving institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think 13 of them are Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander institutions. Some campuses like the one I came from were both. Um, and I think Maritime is about ready to be the 22nd HSI. Awesome. And I talked to President Armstrong. I said, okay, you're 23. <laughs> we're going to get San Luis Obispo cross the line and then we'll be a complete HSI system. And the federal government is looking to invest more in HBCUs and HSIs and 
other minority serving institutions. So I think we're in a really good position right now with the federal government. And we'll see how things go with this House and whether there are changes in the next election. But right now, the alignment is very strong. They've invested a lot in support for you know, emergency grants and other pandemic-related issues for us. Um, and, and they're planning to invest more in infrastructure, and that will help, I think, uh, eventually with some of our infrastructure needs on the campuses. So a lot of good opportunities there right now. I I remember uh, the one time we went to D.C. and, and having some of the discussions. Um, first, just for the listeners, just a, a point of information and also just something I think is interesting and not in a good way um, is that the, the Higher Education Reauthorization Act hasn't been touched since 2008, the, the last time I researched it. It, it was a, a bill that was basically designed to be re-upped every three to four years. And the last time that Congress took a look at the Higher Education Reauthorization Act, um, the, the CSU tuition was half of what it is now. Yeah. And so there have been a lot of changes that just haven't been looked at by the federal government so far. Uh, and I think another thing that I, I has been top of mind, and I've been thinking a lot about this, um, likely we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more in the future, is that the funding models, especially from the federal government, actually, unless you're an HBCU, there's no real financial incentive for serving black students that you have minority serving institutions, you have Hispanic serving institutions, uh, Asian American serving institutions, Native American serving institutions, and then HBCU. But if you're not HBCU, you don't get a specific amount of funding for serving black students. So that's always been, I don't know, it's been in the, the back right. of my head <laughs> recently. Um, anyway, those, it, the, the last thing I'll mention is around basic needs. And I'm on the, the Student Leadership Advisory Council for the Hope Center, which, which I'm sure you, yeah. you've heard of in their, their research around basic needs. Um, there hasn't been too much federally going on in that, that area. And I think that that's, that's a chance for the CSU to continue to be a leader. Anyway, my rant. I agree. <laughs> no, you're right about that. I'd also like to see us get more private uh, contributions for basic needs. I think a lot mm -hmm. of our alumni and friends, what I found, you know, in Fresno is a lot of them wanted to help. And uh, this is a concrete way for them to help, whether it's money or uh, in some cases, we have some of the farmers drive in with awesome fruits and vegetables just would make a huge difference. So wow. I'm, I've been talking to the presidents about that, just making it you know, more of a central focus of their fundraising. Um, and I think that'll also make a difference. Yeah. Well, we did not farmers in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> you have to drive a ways to do that. Yeah. You know, students are going to be most successful or successful when their basic needs are met. And I think there's some interesting implications for how this spills over into, you know, general life um, and, just kind of gaining that welfare more generally. And the CSU has a very interesting place in that, you know, it allows access to a ton of students and um, more and more it's, you're creating, you know, breaking down barriers for people to get into the CSU. Uh, however, we also know that there's a lot of students who don't go into college um, or maybe not in the traditional sense. And of course, now that with like online learning, 
potentially there's movement there. But I was wondering how you see the CSU playing a role in either expanding more access uh, or potentially, you know, collaboration with community colleges uh, or trades, other trade schools um, in a way to kind of bring basic needs uh, to everyone? Um, or, you know, is that something that the CSU kind of steps back from and, and really centers around, you know, the students that are currently enrolled? You know, we're part of a very powerful uh, ecosystem, you know, from preschool all the way to doctoral education. And I think when I talk about CSU and the community colleges, people are surprised that over half of our students come as transfer students. I mean, that's such a powerful, um, such a powerful thing in terms of access and I think that we can strengthen that. I've talked to Chancellor Oakley about it, and he and I have identified where some of the soft spots are around the state, and we're working together to to streamline transfer where it's been a little bit, you know, not as smooth as we want, so that we can make it smooth for for more students. and And then I think about the University of California. We could actually, and President Drake and I have talked about this we could increase the number of CSU graduates who go to the UC for um, PhDs. I mean, Michael, you're a great example of going to get a master's and I love that. And if the more that we can do of that, then we could actually start to think about a strategy where some of those graduates could come back and become faculty in the CSU. So as an ecosystem, we could support that. And I was talking to President Folt at USC. I said, she goes, how can I help? I said, admit more CSU graduates and give them fellowships so they can get their, you know, advanced education. And then I'm probably going to try to hire as many of us as I can (laughs) to be professors. So that's how we can kind of help each other. And then, as you know, you both know that we prepare so many of the K-12 teachers so, you know, we're, we're connected in a deep way with K-12 and, and I'd like to see over time, you know, I'd like to see us prepare more math and science teachers and, and really help those schools that provide, uh, to help those schools to provide even more of those courses for our students um, in a way that, that really makes equity, you know, a real thing for students, wherever they go to school, that they have the opportunity to take those courses. And if they decide they don't want to, I get it, but to make sure those are available for them to take if they want to take them. And I must say that the, the CSU education, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words. I mean, now that I've left and I've been kind of out of the CSU for a year and I'm at a UC now, although virtually, so there, you know, there's some differences there, but I can, I can see a little bit of the, it's like a real world education. We did get the academia and the research aspect and the theory, but it was also very much so applied. And I think that that, that is a little bit of a difference to, to what I've seen uh, from some other institutions where they're almost all theory and research, but yeah. don't know how to take it down to the ground and, and how to make it actionable. Um, it, so it, 
we have a we have a question that we ask every single guest on policy wise and we we recognize that we're running out of time so we're gonna have to get to the question okay what, what would you tell the young people and policy professionals uh, listening into this conversation and thinking about how higher education how the csu plays out in their day-to-day -day lives what message do you have for the students or what lessons would you like to leave for the listeners hmm. <laughs> thank you this has been a lot of fun by the way yeah. Oh yeah. Always. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, it's so personal for me because I remember being on the Berkeley campus where, where you are now, Michael, um, yeah. and having this incredible experience, just like, you know, you had at Fresno state Demi and, and that for me is what is why I'm here. It's like the, that experience transformed my life. My higher education transformed my life. And so when I was thinking about a career and what I could do to pay that gift forward, it's like, oh, I, I want to stay working in a university and try to figure out ways to transform more lives. And mm -hmm. so from a policy and a leadership perspective, that aligned with my values and, and, um, and the mission of the CSU is just in such strong alignment with my, with my values. So that's what I would say to your listeners, um, find that path that really aligns with your gifts and, and your values and, and find a career that, that accomplishes that. And in this day and age, it might be, you know, a, a listing, a, 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 an array of different jobs over time. Uh, but it, but they have the same theme. Um, and for me, that's, that's been my career is different jobs at different places, but the theme has been, how can I uh, provide support for more talented and diverse students in California to be successful? And, and as it relates to the leadership development, universities prepare incredibly bold leaders like you and how can we do that at a scale that transforms our society? That's the, those are the kinds of things that I think about. And, and I'm excited about the CSU's role in, in doing that because we actually have the ability to do it at that scale and, uh, yeah. and partnering with others, you know, the UC and the community colleges, powering California to incredible new heights of success. So those are just a few thoughts that I would share. That's amazing. Um, you know, it's really, really special uh, to have you on and, and to get to listen to you and learn from you and just the, any, any inkling chance to get more leadership uh, advice from you is always, always a huge bonus and um, really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for, for being with us and uh, for all our listeners you finally done it. We finally got Dr. Dr. Castro on the podcast. Um, they've heard so much about you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. I mean, truly thank you for joining us. It, 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 it like just, just doing this will push me through my last final. So thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> I've been there. So I'll, I'll keep those. I remember that exam. I'll, I'll send you positive <laughs> vibes. I remember that exam. I knew you would remember exactly what I'm talking about. The oh my God. Method. And I know we're almost out of time, but you know, I, I still remember walking into that Goldman school and I know your first year has been different than mine was, but 
I walked in and I looked at the class. And at that time, it was there were 33 of us. And we were in what they call that blue room there of the old house. And I walk in and I look around. And, you know, at that time, I was I was 20, 21 or maybe 22 at the oldest. Maybe I think I was 21. And, you know, I see this group of, it seemed like everybody was a lot older, like 30 and 40 and God forbid 50. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> and there's this one guy who looks about my age and I sit next to him and we become, you know, the closest of friends. And uh, he goes on and does these incredible things. And and I was able to appoint him to be my senior advisor about uh, a month and a half ago, Jai Suprasert. And it all started in that classroom. And now we get to work together to serve the CSU. So that's an incredible story. <laughs> it, 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 nothing has changed. There's still very few of us who are on the younger end, but I, I know, it's true. <laughs> and I know, Demi, you probably experienced some of that in Europe, too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's a it's a very wide array because you have like the different age groups and then also just like completely different country contexts, totally different yeah. stages of life. Um, yeah. But it's, it's really special seeing seeing how it plays out in California context. Um, really, really cool. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of PolicyWise. We are your hosts, Demetria. And Michael. Michael and I would love to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about? And who would you like to hear from? Check the episode description for a link to our survey. Thanks. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. And California Forward leads a statewide movement, bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure that the economy works for everyone. Jarrett Ramones produced this episode. Social media graphics created by Abby Peel. And the music was sourced from artlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion here on PolicyWise.